Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Dublin Story Slam is a place where ordinary Dubliners come together to share extraordinary tales. It's an open mic storytelling night where audience members get up and share true, personal stories that are between four and seven minutes long. No props, no notes and no fiction. These tales are all true. I just kind of got up on my knees and I swung my arm and I just punched this cop in the balls. I was like, I'm in a dark part of town here. This isn't on the tourist trail. And next thing, like, before I knew it, there was, a, like, a silver high ace pulled up and the sliding door at the side opened and three local lads came out and kidnapped me. Ben, how can you say, oh, no, I won't make you a unicorn sequin cape? Or, no, sorry, you're getting married. I can't make you and your five flower girls matching sequin. No, you can't do that. You know what? I'd love to be a primary school teacher. I'd love to make a difference to actually... To be a traveller standing up in front of those kids and to be able to look and go, OK, she's a traveller, she's not that bad, so maybe they're not all that bad. The Dublin Story Slam has become one of the most popular nights out in the city. Every single show that's been held at the Sugar Club has sold out since it first began back in 2017. And it's not just for people living in Dublin. Story lovers travel from anywhere, from Cork to Canada. So you never know who you might see on stage. And I'm about to run round, and a father walks out the front door and comes over to me and he goes, we didn't get to meet before, and I've got nowhere to go. This is storytelling, but not as you've heard or seen it before, because at the heart of the Dublin Story Slam is a simple but powerful idea, and it's this. Everyone, yes everyone, even you listening at home, has a story to share. And the Dublin Story Slam is the place to share it. And now I'm in there, just finished my first year in sociology and social policy. I plan on being a policymaker. I want to change this place. I want to make. on gas before and while I was heating a huge vat of oil for my tempura I set an entire roll of kitchen paper on fire (laughs) someone should have sent me home my name is Kerry Ward and that's me on stage at the annual Dublin Story Grand Slam regaling the audience with my misadventures in MasterChef instead I got a call to say congratulations you are going to be on MasterChef At the end of each story slam, a winner is chosen who then goes on to compete for the title of Grand Slam Champion. In 2018, that was me. For now, it is uh, my honour to announce that our winner is... 
Kerry Ward, ladies and gentlemen. Winning the Grand Slam was a huge thrill. But as well as the great excitement of winning and getting to stand on the Abbey stage, it opened up a whole new community of storytellers, which I feel really proud to be a part of. And so this year, I'm bringing you highlights from the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019, which took place at the Abbey Theatre on the 8th of December. So I think we're ready to roll. You, you ready, audience? Yeah, OK. But before we share these tales, we're going to hear a little about the origin of the Story Slam. It begins outside, in the freezing December cold, a full hour before the doors of the Sugar Club open. And already the queue is building. Can you tell us how long you've been coming to the Dublin Story Slam? I've been doing about four or five. And what keeps you coming back? Because they're so good. You don't know what they're going to say when they get up on stage. Like, you don't know what the stories are going to be. It's a good night, mate. Have you sure. guys been at a Dublin Story Slam before? No, first time. And what made you come out tonight? The podcast. Oh, really? Mm. You feel a lot of things, so let's see if we feel them in person. I've actually been to it a few times before, it's really, really good. I started going with my family first, and then I've been trying to get him to get tickets with me for ages, so it's worth twice. So you've been spreading the word and getting more people into the slam? Yeah, I have been, because there's not that many things like this in Dublin, I don't think, so. It's so good, so interesting. Yeah? I, I admire the people who have the guts to stand up and speak the way they do. And you know, they come from the heart, which is great. I have been coming to the Dublin Story Slam for three years uh, because it's always a great night. It's just, yeah, a really creative night and it's great to hear everybody's stories. And you don't even mind queuing in the cold? No, I don't. That's all part of the fun, sure. Make you wait. (laughs) Once the doors open, the crowds pour in. Delighted to be in out of the cold, but also delighted to just be here. Everyone is, and that includes the host. First of all, I love it. I love being here. This is comedian, author and broadcaster Colin O'Regan, who has been hosting the Dublin Story Slam since the very beginning in 2017. So Colm, things are about to kick off, Story Slam's about to begin, the audience are bristling. What is about to happen? Right, so we're at the side of the stage in a little room in the Sugar Club and we can hear the crowd uh, making their kind of pre-show rumble. So I like that. And what I love is, particularly this time before the show, is all the stories that are about to happen. Like, they're out there, and they may never have been told before. So it's like the audience is sort of pregnant with stories, and you don't know who's going to deliver them or how. It's a room full of potential. Exactly, yeah. And my favourite part of a night is the person who has never stood up on a stage before and tells a story that is almost Coen Brothers in its bizarreness. It's those slices of life which show the mad stuff that can happen to ordinary people through no fault, partial fault, or all fault of their own. You may have heard it said that truth is often stranger than fiction. That can certainly be applied to the Dublin Story Slam. There's the story about the guy who lost his finger in a fight with a fence the woman who tried to dance her way into Eurovision, or the swimmer who lost all their clothes while skinny dipping. But there are also the many poignant stories dealing with everything from miscarriage to addiction to losing your home. All of these stories, big or small, funny or sad, begin at the signing up table. Hi, I'm Owen. Uh, I'd like to sign up and uh, tell a story, that's okay. Yeah, cool, Owen. Cheers, I'm Ian. Cheers. Uh, I just want you to fill this out for me here. For sure. 
just a fairly standard details, name and email and contact and all that sort of Has it always been easy to get people to sign up to tell stories or have you struggled? Have you had nights where you're not sure if you're going to fill the stage all night? Yes. <laughs> In a word, yes. This is Julian Clancy. Julian is the brains of the operation. If anyone knows how to make people open up and share with the audience, it's him. Uh, yeah, when we started off, it was my stomach would be just in the nuts once that door opened because you're inviting all these people into a room and you're promising them to give them a show. But the thing about the, the Dublin Story Slam is that the audience is the show. And so we don't know what's going to happen until really somebody comes up and signs up to tell a story. So what we're going to do is we'll drop your name in the hat and we'll be just picked out at random during the show by Colin. So... You just have to be ready to go. What we're trying to do with the Dublin Story Slam is literally trying to capture lightning in a bottle. We don't know what the stories are. We don't know who the storytellers are, what their experience is. Some people will come maybe from a poetry slam background and they're used to owning a stage, whereas other people have come by themselves and have never been on a stage but feel inspired enough to to, to get up and share a story. It's that kind of combination of the two that gives the audience such a great buzz and, and makes the whole thing so unique. The way the Story Slam works is simple. Storytellers can sign up in advance or on the night. Once the show starts, eight names are picked out in random order, and if your name is called, you get up and share your true personal story with the audience. The Dublin Story Slam is a competition, but it's not really about who wins. It's about connecting with an audience through story. Winning my first Story Slam was an incredible experience. But taking part in the Dublin Story Grand Slam blew it out of the water. Think of it this way. If a Story Slam is the county final, then the Grand Slam is the All-Ireland. In December 2019, eight Story Slam winners were invited to come back and share brand new personal stories inspired by the theme, The Decision. When it comes to a Grand Slam, we try and take a theme that really forces the storytellers to kind of think of a bigger story, like a big, massive point in their life where something major happens uh, to them. And I suppose that always involves, at some stage, a decision. So we wanted the, the storytellers to reflect on maybe some of their own personal biggest moments of, from their lives and then bring it back to the point where they made a decision that was really going to shape that experience. As we mentioned before, each story is between four and seven minutes long. Storytellers get a musical cue at the four, six and seven minute mark to help them know where they should be in their story. Acting as our timekeeper tonight is the renowned percussionist Robbie Harris. He also gets the show started in style. Andrea Farrell was our very first storyteller of the night at last year's Dublin Story Grand Slam. 
Andreas started going to the Story Slam back when it began in 2017. It's become a really good way for her to reconnect with old friends. My name's Andrea Farrell and I first came across the Story Slam about three years ago and I started going along and it became a kind of staple with me and my two friends, Fiona and Aoife, who kind of had drifted apart a bit after college. And, you know, we even set up a WhatsApp group, you know, the Story Slam WhatsApp group, and we've pretty much gone to most of the nights, either together or separately, over the last three years. And we've it's brought us back together again, which has been class. Andrea told the winning tale at a Story Slam where the theme was journey. And I realised quickly enough that my dad had taped over every single tape with songs that he made up in his head. In it, she described how a series of cassette tapes recorded by her dad made her smile during a dark time in her life. The first song, the first song was a song called I'm Not George Clooney's Cousin. Because my dad thinks he looks like George Clooney. And it went like this. I'm not George Clooney's cousin. I'm not George Clooney's friend. But if George Clooney was to come into town, we could become friends in the end. Andrea has told three stories at the slam, all really funny. She's also done some stand-up around Dublin. But you don't have to be a comedian to crack people up on stage. I've cried probably most nights at, at the slam, if, if it's more so I've been crying from laughter. They're not comedians, they're not performers, but they have such a natural comedic timing and they don't even realise they have it, that's the thing. And it makes them become almost better storytellers because they're like, yeah, I'm not too bad at this, you know. Taking part in the Dublin Story Grand Slam is totally different from anything else Andrea's done before. It's a lovely anxiety, if that makes sense. Like it's I'm really nervous and excited at the same time. And it's a massive honour. And I've never been on the Abbey stage before. And I can't wait. So my story for the Grand Slam is about a time in my life where I was trying to fix everything and ended up breaking everything, including myself and my own body. So about seven years ago, I was working as a nanny for about two years and it was three days a week and it was fantastic because when I wasn't working, I I was able to pursue things that I was really interested in. I I was saving up for a master's in broadcast production, which is what I do now. I work in TV and film. But for the last, like, seven months, I'd say, of working as a nanny, I got very sick. And I didn't tell anybody that I was sick because of the symptoms, I suppose, that that I had, um, uh, which involved poo. (laughs) And... People don't like to talk about it. I was going to the toilet a lot and I just kept it a secret, you know. And this isn't like, you know, after a bad night and a bad curry kind of poo. This was, this was in the 20s, you know. I was going to the toilet over 20 times a day and still keeping that a secret from my friends and family. And I was losing loads of weight, so I was happy with all the compliments I was getting at the same time. <laughs> But I got to the point where I said, like, I, I think I have to go to the doctor about this. And I went to the doctor. And, you know, I, I, was, I was really happy. The three girls that I was minding, they were angels. And I, I loved them to bits. And I was very happy in my job and happy that I was able to pursue things in the evenings. When I went to the doctor, the doctor told me that it was 
psychosomatic and that I was I was quite um you know quite stressed and I was kind of causing it myself by being an anxious person and you know I wasn't really happy with that but then I accepted it and the doctor put me on antidepressants and gave me Xanax and I was I went on my way and then I decided I need to try and fix myself so I took control and I started with sleep hypnosis. I thought that that would relax me. But really, I was getting, I was stressed out about going to the toilet all the time. There was absolutely nothing else in my life that was stressing me out. So it was this vicious circle. <laughs> I started the sleep hypnosis and I would listen to that at nighttime and that was grand. You know, it annoyed my boyfriend, but it was, it was fine, getting relaxed. Then, I decided to go and do some sensory deprivation and I went into a sensory deprivation tank, which in hindsight was a terrible idea. <laughs> because the doctor told me that my thoughts were causing these, so I went, these, these troubles, so I went into a room in my swimming togs, lay down in salty water, put earplugs in and a blindfold on and just sat alone with my own thoughts for an hour. <laughs> and then the last thing was I decided to do yoga. I thought this would relax me and not just yoga, hot yoga. In my head, boiling hot yoga. And I did this during my break. So as a nanny, the, I would bring the girls to school uh, like in the morning and then I'd have about three hours because they were, they were in play school and school and that their mother asked me if I'd just hang around for those few hours because they worked kind of down the country. And so I pretty much had three hours to do what I want. And I was like, this is the time where I'm going to heal myself. And I went to hot yoga and I fainted within 15 minutes <laughs> and I was sweating buckets. So I came back to the house and the house where the girls lived and I had a cold shower. And when I was in the shower, I felt a bit faint. So I sat down and I turned that shower into a bath. And I filled that bath up to the brim. This is peak water protest time as well, you have to remember. And I sent a picture of my feet in the bath to my boyfriend and said, no way, we won't pay. And I sat back and I, and I relaxed and I calmed down and I got all the heat out of me. And then I got up and I was drying myself off and I pulled the plug out of the sinkhole. And within about 30 seconds of that happened, the house alarm started going off. So I ran downstairs in my towel, turned off the, turned off the house alarm and I got a call from the mother. I just got a call from Aircom Phone Watch. The house alarm's going off there now. Sorry, Kleena, I, I, I came in there and I forgot the code and I put it in wrong and it was my fault. That's grand. I went back upstairs and, you know, put on my clothes. Then the smoke alarm started going off. I ran downstairs, turned it off again, get another call from the mother saying, sorry, I'm not forgetting a call again from Aircom Phone Watch. The smoke alarm is going off now, apparently. Again, I put in the wrong code. I don't know what's going on. I think... There's been a cutout or whatever. I don't know what's going on. Then the alarm went off again. This time both alarms going off. So it was th there was a fire and we were getting burgled. <laughs> but I hadn't located either. 
The third time I ran downstairs and as I was running through the hall, I slipped in the hall on a, a massive pool of water that had started to form. And I looked up and parts of the ceiling were falling down. Um, there was basically, they had never put so much water in the bath before. And um, I highlighted the fact that there was a crack in the sinkhole. And I flooded the house, essentially. But I didn't want to tell them about it just yet. <laughs> I thought, I can, I can fix this. So I rang my boyfriend crying, and he was laughing his head off. Just going from the last message I had texted him from the, from the bath. A moment of calm. And I was, I was like, please, just, like, there's, there's so much stuff going on here. Like, the ceiling is coming down. Can you get in touch with Aidan? Like, Aidan's my friend who's a plumber. So I can, I'm sure he knows a lot who's a plasterer as well. I get them all in. Because they weren't due home until 7 o'clock in the evening. I was, get, I was willing to hire seven lads to come in <laughs> and fix this house before the mother and father went home, came home. And my boyfriend at the time just went, just after he finished laughing for about five minutes, just said, just tell them what happened. And I was like, oh, but then I have to tell them I was having a bath, you know? I'm not meant to be having a bath and I'm minding the kids. And I rang, I rang my boss and I, you know, the mother and I thought that she was going to eat the head of me, but she didn't. And she was very, very kind and said, I'm glad that this has happened now because it was coming up to Christmas and she said, I'm glad it's happened now. It would have happened a few weeks down the line and probably ruined our Christmas. And then within about three weeks of this happening, I got so sick that I had to be brought into hospital. And I spent about six and a half weeks in hospital then. And I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So I was riddled with ulcers all over my body. And getting the diagnosis was a bit scary, but I was happy that it had a name now. And I was glad that I finally was getting help. And if you can take anything from this it would be, don't try and fix things yourself and never trust a fart. <laughs> Andrea Farrell there, kick-starting the night at the Dublin Story Grand Slam last year. At the end of each story, judges give a score out of 10. We're not going to reveal them here, so you'll just have to wait for the following programme to find out who won the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. So back to our first half of the Grand Slam and our next storyteller to take the stage is Mark Early. Mark is a secondary school teacher in Ranala. Like Andrea, it was friends who first introduced Mark to the Dublin Story Slam. The first time I came across storytelling like this was uh, through friends in Ultimate Frisbee who've been attending uh, the Dublin Story Slam for a long time and ended up there without a ticket. So I went up to, to Julian who was running it and asked him, look, if I sign up to speak, can I have a ticket? And he said, yep, absolutely, no problem. So in I went, and the, the theme was about fear. And uh, my, my wife, Leanne, had died a, a year and a half previous, and I was at a stage in my processing of the grief that I wanted to try and challenge myself a little bit and thought that telling that story and telling, talking about her uh, to a room full of strangers would be beneficial for me. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, would be a great way of trying to help other people. Help me develop. Um, I've I've come across a lot of people. I've met a lot of other widows and or widowers and widows. Um, other people who've suffered loss, sisters, brothers, and unfortunately in Ireland, a lot of people um, who've who've faced suicide or or lost others through it. And 
a lot of them talk about post-traumatic growth. And that's something I've been trying to, trying to do. And that hopefully tonight will, will be another step in that process. Um, so it meant a lot that night. It, it, it proved to me that I was able to share Leanne's story in person. I'd done a couple of radio interviews about a blog I was writing. I'd written a huge amount around her and around grief for a young male to be going through. Like It's quite rare for someone aged 35 to be widowed. It was very... Um, it was very good for me and it put me in a good place uh, to, to go and win it that night was completely unexpected and a nice, a, nice, a nice bonus, I suppose. That story was recorded in 2018. But for Mark, creating a new story for the Grand Slam was a challenge at the start. Preparing for the Grand Slam, I mean, to be 100% honest, my life at the moment is a whirlwind. I'm, I'm, I have a lot on my plate. I'm, I'm, I've recently started a beekeeping business. I'm a full-time teacher, I am in a new relationship, and I am also studying again. So it was more a case of me finding headspace to actually get the story together. So I started at a laptop writing, and I wrote out draft after draft and honed it and edited it uh, until it was a lovely written piece. And then I took that leap from turning it from a written piece, something I could actually say, standing trying to say it out loud, even on my own, was really difficult and really different. And I have a completely new appreciation to the art form of storytelling. The story tonight is about how big an effect a very small decision can have on my life. And it's about trusting my gut and going with my heart when I make those decisions. (sighs) My story begins on a yoga mat in a uh, Paris centre in Budapest, I was attending a class there um, for a Wim Hof breathing class. And I was sitting in the back of the room, uh, watching people come in, wondering what lay ahead. Um, I'd, been, I'd been before, I knew Lee, um, Neil, the, the, the instructor, and I kind of had a rough idea of what the day uh, had in store. Um, But what I didn't know was that in that room sat the woman that I'm now in love with. Uh, Neil asked us to uh, introduce ourselves, and uh, one by one, each person in the room explained why they were there and what they were doing. Um, And as it worked through the room, we heard from people telling us that they were CrossFit experts looking for a quicker recovery, or intrigued by um, the Wim Hof technique, or like myself, coming back for another visit, having been before. And as it kind of snaked its way around the room, the introductions got to a woman called Anna. And Anna said, um, with a crack in her voice, that she was there to work through grief she was going through, and that she was hoping to get some help from the meditation. So I decided that, having heard that, I'd reach out to her and mention her by name, Um, and just tell her that I knew what she was going through, or at least I had an idea of what she was going through and that I was going through similar. So when the the introductions came around to me, I said, much like Anna, I'm going through a period of deep grief, and I'm here today to see if I can work through some of that. And that little decision um, has changed my life completely. In 2017, um, in April, my wife Leanne... Um, died from an epileptic seizure. 
She was 35 years old, and she was one of the most giving and friendly people I've ever met. And that day, um, my life changed um, in a way that I didn't expect, uh, and in a way that destroyed everything that I'd been building up to at that point. So the question before me then was, where do I go from here? What do I do? How do I face this? There were a lot of questions. And I decided that I'd try and be positive, that I'd try and grow from the experience, and that I'd try and stay brave and open. So I did. Um, back in Buddhist town, during the first break of the day, Anna came over to my yoga mat and introduced herself. And we had a little chat and it turned out, in a strange coincidence, that she actually knew Leanne's brother. They'd lived in Sydney at the same time and had both had children in the same maternity ward over in Sydney. And she'd seen Leanne's death and the, the ripple effect of it through her brother's eyes and knew my story and had a broad idea of who I was. She told me her story and the pain she was in and what she was going through. And we connected. And it, that moment is something I believers in fate would say we were meant to meet that day. At the end of the class, everyone kind of went about their own business and left. And I made a point of seeking out Anna uh, to talk to her. And it was awkward. I was nervous. I wasn't sure what was appropriate. You know, I was immediately attracted to the woman, but at the same time, there's all these feelings around what we've just shared and what could possibly happen or where could we possibly go. So I said to her, if she was interested in keeping in touch or meeting again, she could contact me on email. I was afraid to ask for a number. <laughs> um, and sure enough, about a week later, I got an email from her and we swapped numbers. We kept in touch, we tried to do, do a coffee or a walk, it didn't really happen. Um, but instead, we decided to go to another breathing session together with Neil, and we ended up back at my house where we had dinner, and our relationship began. And for us, that's something incredible. We were both, you know, mid to late 30s, we both had our worlds completely destroyed, hers with three children in tow, and we were at a stage of grief and at a stage of our lives where we didn't think we'd find that person again or meet another person like it. And luckily we did. And slowly we fell in love. We started doing things again that we'd done with previous partners. And it was difficult. But that love overcame a lot of obstacles. We went to gigs again. We're both big fans of live music. We went to festivals and rebuilt ourselves through each other, leaning on each other. Recently, we were in the car coming home with the kids, and a song from La La Land came on. <clears throat> and I told Anna I was going to mention this tonight, and she, she, she wanted me to sing the first few bars, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> <clears throat> but a, a song came on, and it reminded me very distinctly of the first time I saw that film in the cinema in Dunleary with Leanne. And we kind of half skipped and danced the way home with it blaring out of Spotify. And that soundtrack's something very dear to me and very difficult for me to listen to. And Anna turned around and said she had a similar story. 
only she'd been dancing around her kitchen with her toddler, with her toddler in her arms on her own in the depths of grief. And it had been a positive song for her. So here's two adults at the bottom of their rope, you know, in the toughest conditions they can be in, and we happened upon each other. And it just, for me, it shows the importance of being open, of being brave, of looking for other people, even when you're, you know, when you're down. And uh, I'm just really glad I made that choice that day to reach out and talk to her. That's my story. That was Mark Early with a story of hope and new beginnings that all began with the tiniest of decisions. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Our next storyteller is Michael Lavin who has been listening to stories since he was a child in his native Roscommon. It's changing now, but when I was young, the idea of people coming into your house and telling stories, I can't remember when I was young, people coming into the house and we'd sit down and there'd be awesome and telling the yarn. And uh, it's something that I, I, I enjoy. And the, I used to love listening on the radio to the Shanachie, Ned Kelly, Eamon Kelly was RTE Shanachie and I'm old enough to remember that I used to love hearing his stories and they were always very witty and very funny but they always had a message and if you, if you listen to a story and everybody has a story no matter who they are and uh, there's, always a, there's always a lesson in it for everybody. Michael first attended the Story Slam with friends from the charity Fighting Blindness. The Story Slam has become a popular group night out for members of the organisation and it's not unusual to see a guide dog seated among the audience. Michael himself is also blind. Well, I first attended the Dublin Story Slam last April purely by a blind friend of mine who said, there's this thing going on in the Sugar Club and it's about telling stories and you might be interested in it. Well, for me as a person who happens to be blind, I'm at the same level as everybody else. I'm hearing the story the same as people who are fully sighted. If I go to a movie or a film or if I go to the theatre, uh, I'm at a slight disadvantage because I'm not 
at the same level as everybody else. Uh, I'm missing the slightest element of it. So from that point of view, the Dublin Story Stamp suits somebody like myself. It's, it is very inclusive. The night Michael attended, the theme was milestones. So with a little bit of help and plenty of enthusiasm and energy, Michael made his way to the stage to tell a last minute story. Can I just start off by saying that Julian said his milestone uh, this week was drive, his, passing his driving test. Now, that's my next aim. <laughs> so, uh, I had no intention of taking part, but uh, I got, uh, people kept happy, go on, she'll give it a try, see how it goes. So I uh, took part and actually happened to win. So I was more, there was nobody more surprised than myself. And then I landed in Dublin and I'm brought out to the Eye and Ear Hospital. That famous place. And this smart Dublin guy says to my father, do you know what that place was before they built it? I couldn't guess. I, I'm from the country. I wouldn't know. It was a sight for sore eyes. <laughs> well, when I experienced uh, the, the story slam for the first time and then discovered that I was going to have to uh, appear in the Abbey, uh, I, I was a little bit taken aback because I thought, you know, this is going to be a bit beyond me, but I felt, well, I mean, I've tried it and uh, I'm always a great believer in give me a go, whether it works out or not. So um, I, 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 I probably have an advantage in that I can't see the people that are down there, so I have no idea how big the crowd is. So I probably have an advantage in that respect. Well, the story for uh, the Grand Slam is called The Decision. And immediately I heard the theme, I knew what I wanted to do. Immediately. When I heard the decision, that has, decision has been important in my life, all my life, and I've never actually spoken in public about it before. And I, I haven't even told my wife, uh, and uh, I want her to appreciate it and get the full effect of it on the night. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my story starts on a sunny day in 1980. I'm in the outpatients department of the Matter Hospital on Dublin's North Circle Road, and I have an appointment to see Dr. O'Donoghue, the eye specialist. He has been looking after my eye condition for years, and while this, my sight is deteriorating, uh, I still have quite a sufficient amount of vision, although it is, it is challenging at times. Now, I have lucky enough to have a, quite a good bit of independence. To give you an idea as to what I can see at that time, I could read a newspaper, although I had to hold it quite close to my face, and the problem with that was I ended up invariably with ink on the tip of my nose. <laughs> my nephews, who were young kids at the time, used to say, Uncle Michael knows the news. <laughs> so, <laughs> as, to what, as to what I couldn't see, um, I couldn't see steps either going up or down, so I had no perception of, of the depth of a step of the height. I also found people's faces blurred. There were no great definition there. Anyway, I'm in with Dr. O'Donoghue, and unsurprisingly, he tells me that my sight is deteriorating and that I am liable to have ongoing eye infections. He says the only real solution for me is a corneograph or corneal transplant. Now, I know somebody who had already got that, and they had some sight restored. So I asked him, what were the odds of it being successful? And he said, probably around 50%. So I said, um, 
would you recommend it? I said, no, that's, <laughs> that's going to be your decision. I can't make that decision for you. So I said, fair enough. He says, I would advise you to talk it with your family and come back to me, and if you wish to proceed, I know a very good specialist in Watford will look after you. So he agonised it on it for a number of days, thinking the pros and cons. If I, I stay the way I am, I have enough sight for a while. I have quite a, enough independence. If I go for an, the coronagraph, the chances are I could get my, a good bit of sight back. But the other side of it is I could be completely blind. So as if, I wasn't afraid. I was afraid to take the risk. And I, the old proverb goes, the devil you know is bad, the devil you don't know. So I contacted and told the doctor, no, I wouldn't proceed. And time went by. And at that time, I was very fortunate to meet a very nice girl who in, in, in terms became very much in love with. And unfortunately, we were very good friends. We got on very well together. And um, I, she happened to be blind herself. And we began to realize, you know, if I had gone for that cornea transplant, life might be that little bit easier. So I had the regrets, and when the, when the appointment card for the next time came through my letterbox, we were all ready to go and up for, for the transplant. So I go in to see him, Dr. Donahue again, and he says, well, what's the situation? I say, I want to go ahead with this. No problem, he was delighted, he thinks it's the right decision. And he says, it makes the arrangement for me to go to Watford. Time passes by, and I, um, I'm down with... Mr. Condon in Arkeen Hospital, and he goes through the pros and cons of the operation, what I can expect, how long I'll be in hospital, etc., etc. And uh, he said he told me one thing that um, once uh, a, a cornea is found for me, he has he has seven hours in which to carry out the transact the, the transplant, and he told me that I would be in Dublin to be ready at a moment's notice to come down to Warford for to have the actual transplant done. So I was, went off home, and a few months later, got a call at 8 o'clock in the morning to be in Waterford that day. There was a train at 11.05, and I was on that train. And I remember passing through by, I still had quite a bit of vision, and I can still remember passing by trees and fields on the way down to Waterford and thinking, I wonder, will I see these on the way back? So I went into water in Darkeen, had the, had the prep for the operation. The operation took place in the evening. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night. And um, there was a night nurse there, and I asked her, how had the operation gone? And she says, very successful. So I was quite happy. She says, I just need to take a little quick peep at uh, the eye. So she takes out the bandage. And ladies and gentlemen, as I told you, I had never seen human features before. Imagine my surprise when in front of me I could see a late girl with brown hair, blue eyes, little button nose, two lovely red, red lips, two, two uh, rows of white teeth, and I could even see her eyebrows. <laughs> so the next morning, Mr. Connolly came in to have a look at his handiwork, and he was very happy with how it had gone. And from then on, for the next few days, I was in the new world of sighted experience. I remember looking out the window at the trees. I could see the, the blue of the sky. I could see the, the clouds. I could see the buildings near the hospital, 
there were doors, windows, chimneys. There was even steps which I could see. But all that went into, 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 into insignificance when that evening, who comes in to see me? But my, my uh, wife, wife-to-be. So I was <laughs> very excited at that because I had been secretly wondering what it would be like. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and, I, and I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> so the, I was there for a week, and I had this fear at night of closing my eyes for fear when I wake up in the morning, everything would be gone. And, you know, believe it or not, after about a week, I began to have slight problems, a, a mistiness in front of my eyes. The doctor says it might be due to the stitches that were tightening on the cornea, and when I got the stitches out, I'd be fine. I was discharged, and about a fortnight later, I came down to have the stitches taken out. But uh, instead of getting better, things were getting worse. And I was in a room, it was like a room full of smoke. So anyhow, um, three or four weeks later, I'm back with Dr. Dunham on the matter, and he cannot believe that I'm carrying a white cane. So he, because he had got pictures, he had got x-rays from Waterford at the time, and he was expecting very good results. So anyway, they came along, and... He says, unfortunately, he did an examination of my eye, and he says, sadly to say, he says, you have, uh, your optic nerve has failed. So I was devastated. But at the same time, I was a few weeks short of getting married to Teresa, and I says, I'll be determined, we won't let this beat us, and we'll carry on. So that's 35, almost 35 years ago, uh, since I made that fateful decision. And I often ask myself, was it the right decision? And of course it was, because it gave me the gift of sight, even for a short period. The gift to be able to see the world, and to be able to see my wife-to-be, and to be able to see my, my family and my, those close to me. The memories of that sustain me ever since. But have the one thing I will say about your sight, it's a great gift. And the one great gift about uh, your eyesight is that you can still continue giving it after you leave this world in the form of, of, a, donor, of, a, heart, of a, a transplant or for somebody else. Like the person that gave me the cornea, uh, and I, always, never, I, never forget, I was always grateful to that person. So that's my story for you. Thank you. Michael Lavin there who got an extra loud cheer as he left the stage that night with a little help from fellow storyteller Andrea Farrell. Our last storyteller of the first half is Sinead Nolan. Sinead works for a human rights organisation and her work has brought her around the world. At a story slam where the theme was home, Sinead got up and told an extraordinary story of being taken hostage during a dispute over land between angry farmers and the government in a remote part of Mexico. As a human rights worker, Sinead knows the importance of how stories can connect. The reason that I told the story was that I had lived in Mexico and worked for in, in human rights for a year, and uh, a lot of the, when I, when I came home, like I was telling stories about all of these terrible things that had happened to people that I knew, like their family members had been disappeared or they had been lied to by the state for all of these various different reasons but really all that anybody was interested in was what had happened to me like what happened to you while you were over there was that really terrible for you and all of this kind of thing um, 
And actually this one this one thing had happened to me which was really frightening and scary which seemed to kind of capture people's imagination a little bit more. So that's why I kind of told the story because it's not your kind of classic I got taken hostage in Mexico by like drug stealers or anything like that. It was more like a story of I got taken hostage in Mexico by people who were just like you and me. There was one point where we did get really very scared. We were kind of, night was starting to fall and for some reason the negotiations with the embassies had broken down and we were kind of looking at it thinking we might have to spend the night in here. We were also thinking there's kind of a danger that these people are going to storm the building if things don't go their way, so we better make a little plan uh, for if that happens. (laughs) So we made a plan. Uh, It was... The kind of plan that like a baby who was trying to escape from a cot would be like, lads, <laughs> that plan is shit. Um, getting up at a story slam has definitely, uh, and telling a story that has meant something to me has given me a bit of confidence to tell that story a bit more. And also, I guess, just realising the importance of the stories that are yours and, and how like if a story really means something to you and really, really connects with something inside you you can often make it connect to other people as well you know I was recently renovicted from my home of eight years uh renovation for anybody who's lucky enough not to know what it is is when a landlord uh, says they're going to renovate the place, but really they just uh, they want to do it so that they can evict the tenant and put the rent up and um, so that happened to me. And the thing about getting evicted from a house is that um, it's not your decision at all, you know. So it's it's very disempowering. And obviously, having been living in my home for eight years, I was really, really attached to it. I had a lot of very nice memories built up in it. So it was a bit devastating. Um, it was a real feeling of, like, upheaval and being uprooted out of my life. Um, so on the last night that I was in my house, I was on my own. And um, <laughs> I was doing this kind of silly thing where I'd taken a bit of lavender from the front garden and I'd gone around all the rooms, saying goodbye to the rooms and saying goodbye to all the memories and stuff that I'd had in them just to kind of close the chapter or whatever. And um, a bit weird, I know, but sure, look. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I came out into the front garden and um, it was this lovely front garden and I just kind of thought, oh, this garden, Jesus. Because when I first moved into the house, um, I was working in the Simon community and I was working in a community garden part of it um, because gardening was supposed to be quite therapeutic and particularly for people in addiction and stuff. And it it was like you could see a lot of them would come in and they would be visibly better having done it. um, And some of them would just come in and have a can of fag and then be off, you know, but like... (laughs) But uh, actually, I was also finding that I was getting a lot out of it. You know, I was actually finding it very therapeutic. So um, when I moved into the house, I uh, I started to, I, you know, it was this big garden. And I was like, oh, my God, I can get flowers over here. And I'll have vegetables over there and rainbows flying out of it and stuff, you know. <laughs> Plans that never really uh, happened, but sure. I spent a lot of time in there um, in the first year. And I planted that lavender plant. And uh, I had a little helper, actually, uh, this little kid called Sarah who lived uh, like a couple of doors down. She was a really cute, like maybe seven-year-old kid. And uh, the first time I met her, uh, she kind of popped her head around the gate and she had this lovely long red hair, right? So you'd kind of see the hair coming around before you'd even see Sarah. And she was, she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, hi, hey, yeah. <laughs> I'm just planting this lavender here. And she's like, oh yeah, can I help? 
And I was like, yeah, yeah, come on in. And uh, so she came in anyway, and I was like, oh, you know, tell her about the lavender. Like, lavender helps you sleep and different things like that. And uh, she's like, oh, yeah, it smells lovely as well. And I was like, yeah, this kid's cute, you know, she's really nice. So uh, we became kind of really good friends, actually, me and the seven-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, she used to run around as well with the other kids in the estate. Like, there were loads of kids living on the estate, and um, she used to run around with them as well. And they were absolutely mad. Like, I came home one night uh, during my first year there, and they had kind of uh, occupied the entire street. And by that I mean, like, they had kind of split up into warring factions, and they were, like, standing on the roofs of the cars and, like, rolling down windscreens and underneath cars and, like, shooting the people walking by and stuff. It was like, they were gas, like, gas kids. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a couple of years ago as well, uh, during Forbidden Fruit uh, on in Kilmainham, uh, all the kind of hipsters in the land descend on Kilmainham with their, their sunglasses and their moustaches and face paint and stuff and, and drugs and drugs. And, um, and one of the little kids in my estate uh, managed to commandeer a megaphone for himself. And he was uh, running up and down James's Street going, I've got loads of ketamine. <laughs> <laughs> and I was walking by, I was like, do you know what? He probably does, very ingenious. Like. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so Sarah was kind of, uh, she used to hang around with them as well. But uh, she was a really, like, really nice, cute kid. And she was always kind of looking after. Um, she had two little brothers and she was, she always, she, she often brought them around and they'd be helping out as well. But um, she was often minding them and they'd be out until all hours, like, and the little lad was only two. The little lad actually gave me the finger once, um, which was uh, hilarious. Um, but uh, she was always looking after them and we, uh, the four of us actually planted sunflowers together as well that summer. And uh, I remember one night I was, uh, I was covering up the sunflowers because it was getting cold and uh, she popped her head around in her little, what are you doing? And I was like, uh, I'm just covering up these sunflowers here, you know, because they're, they're probably going to get cold or whatever. And she came in and she put her hands around the, the flower pots and she was like, oh, yeah, they're freezing. <laughs> and, and then she like, like immediately got to work helping me cover them up and stuff. So she was just gorgeous. So on, on the, my last night in the house when... Um, and I came out into the garden and I, I saw the lavender and stuff and I, I brought it around and, and everything. But uh, I, I just got to thinking of her, you know, and I decided not to bring the lavender with me um, because, uh, well, it had been there for eight years and it had put down roots. And this is obviously a nice metaphor for the whole story, but uh, uh, I wasn't going <laughs> to bring it with me because it wouldn't survive the move. So um, I decided to make up little bags of it for myself and like my housemate and Aoife, my grown-up friend from across the road and <laughs> the L1 next door and stuff. Um, and uh, all this is happening, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, me having no decision, but I, I did actually have a decision, you know, because um, my parents, as soon as I got evicted uh, or got the notice of eviction, had said to me immediately, um, you know, Sinead, you can come home here whenever you want and for as long as you want. And they only live in Nace and they're two extremely lovely people um, and they're in the audience, so I obviously can't say anything else apart from that. Um, but, yeah, I had a decision, you know, and the decision that I had was to, to move home and I was feeling like, God, I'm so lucky, actually, to have that because so many people don't, you know, they don't have that option. Um, and I was 
thinking about that in the context of you know making these bags of lavender for people and wishing wishing that I could give a little bag to Sarah because she helped me plant it you know um, but I couldn't because the last time I saw Sarah um, she came running into the garden and she was like guess what guess what guess what, guess what? I was like oh what's going on and uh, she was like we're moving out and I was like inside you know I was like oh my god no she can't move out like she I know she's only seven but she's my friend <laughs> um, <laughs> but you can't say to a seven-year-old child like I won't be able to go on without you <laughs> so um, so I was so I was like outwardly I was like oh that's amazing brilliant where are you moving to and she said, with all the joy in the world, we're moving into a hotel. That's the last time I saw her. That was Sinead Nolan there with a story that left its mark on the audience at the Abbey Theatre. Closing out the first half of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. That brings to an end the first part of this two-part special. In our next programme, you'll hear four more Story Slam finalists regaling audiences with stories inspired by The Decision. I'm there in Yosemite thinking of the thousands of ways in which this friendship shaped me and I just decide, I can't stay here, I have to get home. I wanted something more. I wanted more than a trophy cabinet, than an All-Ireland track medal could give me. I wanted more than a training run every day could give me. And when he told me that he loved me on one of those summer days that seems endless for all the right reasons, under the green and the gold of the trees outside his house, he was making a decision that I would only really begin to understand later when things were hard. So here I was in Grafton Street in my late 20s going, do I believe in God, do I not? Is confession right? Will I go? Will I go? And eventually I decided, ah, stuff it, I'll go. It'll do me no harm and it might do me some good. Recorded live at the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. We'll also hear from Daisy McCarthy, the winner of the 2017 Grand Slam. And we'll explore the impact storytelling can have on an audience as well as on the storyteller themselves. I don't know quite how to describe what the magic of it, the Dublin Story Slam here is in Dublin, but it's, it's just really wonderful. My name is Kerry Ward, signing off on the first half of the Dublin Story Grand Slam 2019. Until next time. The Dublin Story Grand Slam radio special was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 